Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everyone. This is Ryan Tripp on New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. We're here today with Associate Professor of History, Jared Ross Hardesty. He's an Associate Professor of History at Western Washington University. He just uh, recently published Black Lives, Native Lands, White Worlds, A History of Slavery in New England out earlier this year by Brightleaf, an imprint of uh, University of Massachusetts Press. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Hardesty. Thank you for having me. I do want to ask you before we uh, dive in a little bit into the uh, into the questions: is what really prompted you to study varieties of slavery in New England, and why did you organize the book chronologically and thematically? Yeah, so this actually uh, goes back to when I was a graduate student. Um, when I was getting my PhD, I wrote my dissertation on slavery in 18th century Boston. Uh, that started off as a pragmatic decision. I was a graduate student at Boston College, and I was near this archive. But what I when I'd heard some stories about how rich the archives were in New England related to slavery, and that many of those records were actually untapped. And so I began this process of researching slavery in 18th century Boston. That ultimately became my first book, which was uh, titled Unfreedom, Slavery, and Dependence in 18th Century Boston. It came out with NYU Press in 2016. But in the course of Writing that book, I came to the I, I came to the conclusion, um, and, I, and I really discovered that one of the things that was lacked um, in terms of secondary literature, in terms of the the scholarship available both to academics and to the reading public alike, was a general overview of slavery in New England. Um, in fact, uh, the last book to do this, that, that took a kind of general overview of, of all slavery in New England, was published in 1942 by a historian named Lorenzo Johnston Green uh, in a book called The Negro in Colonial New England. And there's been a lot of work on slavery in New England since then, but oftentimes part of larger histories of slavery, uh, American slavery, of slavery in the American North, or their really specialized studies, say like my first book, which is about slavery in 18th century Boston, um, and they look at you know particular moments or themes or sets of sources. This book was meant to be kind of a comprehensive overview of the subject, and, and kind of the first one in eighty years. But I also wanted to make sure it was short and approachable, and that's why it kind of took the chronological and topical focus it does. It opens in the sixteen twenties and thirties with the colonization of New England, and ends in the early nineteenth century uh, with emancipation, and in between. Uh, you learn about the kind of the rise of slavery. You learn about the, the slave trade in New England. You learn about slavery as an institution. And it finally ends by talking about the, the way the American Revolution kind of ended slavery. Um, and then and then the kind of problems of emancipation from there. And so I thought that was sort of the best way in which to approach the topic, to make it readable, but also be as comprehensive as possible. During the 1640s, why did Puritan New England face labor shortages? And how did spiritual economy, the carrying trade, native land dispossession, 
and native captive slavery paved the way for African chattel slavery. Um, I'll start with the, the second part of that first, because it actually all fits together. You can't understand the rise of African slavery in New England without understanding all of those issues you just described, labor shortages, native land dispossession, and things like that. What happened when the, the Puritans first arrived in New England? Um, we're talking uh, in the 1620s and into the 1630s up to 1640 or so. You have the arrival of tens of thousands of people, about 30,000 people in total arrived in the region from, from England. It's the largest uh, uh, free migration of people, um, uncoerced migration of people in the early modern world. And that allowed for the rapid expansion of settlement in the region, uh, the establishment of towns and, and co- whole, whole colonies, you know, counties, all that. Um, the thing was, though, uh, there were two, there's two sort of factors that are limiting that. The first is the access to land. All the land in New England, of course, had been claim, already claimed by indigenous people who'd lived here for thousands of years and lived in New England for thousands of years. And so the one of the factors that comes to, to play a key role in the rise of slavery is actually uh, Indian war and in dispossession of indigenous people from their lands. Um, so, for example, one of the earliest Indian wars in New England was the Pequot War, which lasted from 1636 to 1638. And it's in the aftermath of that conflict in which the uh, New Englanders had captured uh, a few hundred Pequot captives. Um, many of those captives became in, kind of enslaved in the region. They lived um, on kind of local farms, including a, a leading kind of military officers and uh, colonial officials. John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts, uh, received um, Pequot captives. So did his son, John Winthrop Jr., who ultimately became governor of Connecticut. Um, but the other thing that happened was that many of those captives were actually sold out of the colony um, to the West Indies, where they were exchanged for African slaves. And so this is the other side of the equation. So on the one hand, um, Indian war and captivity actually was a vehicle. Um, certainly it provided labor like all slave systems do, but Indian slavery in New England especially allowed for the, the capture of land and, and the ability to dispossess indigenous people either by holding them in bondage elsewhere in the region or selling them out entirely. That freed up land for the rapid expansion of English settlements. The problem, however, though, is that that rapid expansion eventually uh, would meet its limits in terms of the labor available to continue that settlement, the, the kind of colonization. And that's where African slavery came in. Enslaved Africans could become kind of a supplemental labor force, uh, sometimes in some industries an instrumental labor force, uh, depending on, on what you're looking at and where you're looking at. Um, they could help meet the problems of labor shortages that began to plague the region by about 1640. Um, because what had happened is the region's ability to expand uh, into new lands meant that many young, uh, young New England men and women did not want to remain in, on their fa- families, on the family land, on their fathers and, and mothers' land. Rather, they wanted to move to the frontier where they could acquire land of their own. And so there was this question of how do you keep labor on areas that have already been settled? How do you provide more labor for the settlement of the frontier? And African slavery became um, an answer to that. So in the context of Article 91 of the 1641 Body of Liberties, the 1652 Rhode Island Anti-Slavery Law, Slavery Law and uh, Partis Doctrine, why is it difficult for researchers to determine the exact legal status of New England slavery in the early 17th century? 
Further, what does this difficulty have to do with the burgeoning provisioning trade with the so-called West Indies? And what were the transformative consequences thereof? Yeah, so what happens um, is that you begin to see these laws in the early 1640s in Massachusetts, um, namely that what's called the Body of Liberties, which enumerated the rights and the laws of the, uh, the rights of the colonists and the laws of the colony. Um, and Article 91 of the, the Body of Liberties essentially said that slavery was illegal except for in three cases, uh, whether someone had been, uh, had been captured in a just war, whether they were a stranger to the colony, or they had been sold as slaves. And so what the law does, on the one hand, is actually, if you read it, it's actually banned slavery. But what it in practice does, it allows for the enslavement of indig- indigenous people through just war. And, uh, and, and Africans through because Africans were considered legally strangers and also would oftentimes be sold into the colony. And so what that means is that it, that it kind of this backhanded legalization of slavery. Um, the Rhode Island law is actually kind of an interesting that, uh, instance, too, because the law did, in fact, ban slavery. But on the other hand, it seems to have been uh, the, the joint venture of two of the towns. There, there are four towns in uh, Rhode Island at the time of two of the towns against one of the towns that was heavily interested in getting involved in slavery. Um, the, the final piece of that is the partis doctrine, which is re- recru- uh, refers to a Latin term, partis uh, sequitur ventrinum, which meant that children followed the status of their mother. Um, this was the cornerstone of slavery across uh across the Atlantic world um, in, in the English, French, Dutch, Spanish, Portuguese cases that it meant that when uh, an enslaved woman had a child, that child would also be enslaved. And this allowed for the hereditary slavery. Now, the reason to talk about all three of those laws in this context is it suggests the ambiguity of slave law in Massachusetts and in the rest of New England. In fact, in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, um, and New Hampshire, that we didn't like, you don't see, um, a, a clear articulation whether or not slavery is fully legal. Um, but most historians have argued, and, and you know, the, the book at the end of the day is a synthetic work. It's I'm drawing from the work of other scholars that that's actually deliberate. That this kind of ambiguity towards slavery actually allowed uh, masters, uh, slave owners, to kind of do as they, they wanted because there's such little law governing slavery uh, in, in, in New England. Um, and the Partis Doctrine is also interesting because there's actually never a law on the books uh, in, in any of the New England colonies that legalized Partis. It's just accepted as custom. And that's the jumping off point for the second part of the question about the West Indies. Um, New England had made very close contacts with the, the West Indies, which in the 1640s and 50s and into the 1660s and 70s began to transform from kind of uh, colonies that would have looked a lot like Virginia or New England um, to essentially giant sugar plantations, uh, islands made up of, of sugar plantations driven uh, by slave labor. Uh, New England's one of the earliest places, the New England colonies, um, they find an economic lifeline in the Caribbean where they could trade uh, surplus agricultural goods, uh, livestock, fish, and timber to the West Indies, and that fuels those sugar plantations. They're, they're literally feeding slaves and empowering plantations with timber and livestock. Um, and what that, what that means is it created a very close relationship, a symbiotic relationship between the two regions that went beyond the economic and went into the cultural, went into the familial, where many, uh, so John Winthrop, for example, had sons that settled in the West Indies. And you also see a lot of borrowing. Uh, a lot of the kind of laws passed to govern slavery in 
uh, Barbados, which was the main English colony in the er, in the 1640s and 50s and 60s, uh, but also from Antigua and eventually Jamaica. Um, There's such kind of heavy borrowing that they treat things like Pardis as as custom. That this was sort of the the custom of slavery in the English Empire, and it just kind of is how it works in New England without ever actually being legalized. And that create and it what furthers that sort of legal ambiguity, which on the surface. Um, might not seem like the wisest decision on the parts of enslavers, right? Because you want clear laws that allow you to own enslaved property, but also gave them so much leeway in their ability to dictate the terms and conditions of enslavement for the people they own. How and why did increased New England importation of chattel slaves from the greater Caribbean accompany an expansion of New England's engagement in the Atlantic slave trade? Um, this one is similar to the last question. This is one where they can't be decoupled from each other um, because New England became uh, many of the enslaved people that arrived in New England had spent time or were even born in the West Indies. Um, but part of it, it comes out of that provisioning trade. New Englanders trading, you know, the fish and the livestock and the agricultural goods to the West Indies. And they'd oftentimes purchase tropical commodities like molasses and sugar, but also enslaved people to bring them back. But once New Englanders, especially Rhode Island, the colony of Rhode Island, which became the center of the New England or of the of the slave trade in British North America, really the British America, more slave ships leave from Rhode Island than any other colony, um, and actually all the other colonies combined, um, the, it it further integrates the kind of greater the the slave societies of the Greater Caribbean with New England because Rhode Islanders, it's the famous triangular trade. Rhode Islanders would. Uh, Take, uh, they would, they would go to the, they would buy molasses from the West Indies. They would turn that molasses into rum, take it to the West Africa where they trade that rum for, uh, African captives. They would take those African captives to the West Indies to sell them to, to, to fuel sugar, to power sugar plantations, to work on sugar plantations in exchange for molasses. Now, two things happened at that, at that point when they're in the West Indies exchanging captives for molasses and sugar. Um, one of the things is that they would oftentimes purchase enslaved people there uh, to take back to the region. But they also oftentimes wouldn't sell all of their cargoes uh, of, of captives. And so many of those captives, especially the kind of, um, and, and this is the term, so it, it seems a bit uh, uh, crass, but the, the term is the refuse slaves, the, the, the captives that nobody else wanted to buy, um, is that they would bring them back to New England. So this tended to be elderly people who are a little bit older, uh, but also a lot of children. And so, the, the Africans that arrived in New England were oftentimes the ones that were left over from the trade with the West Indies uh, or that had been actually purchased in the West Indies in exchange for uh, other African captives uh, in, in the triangular trade. How did investment in the transatlantic slave trade shape the institution of New England slavery and alter its demography? And why do you contend that, quote unquote, almost every slave who lived in New England, whether born in Africa or the Americas, had spent time in the West Indies? Yeah, so this this comes back to the last question: the the, the heavy involvement of enslaved or of, of New Englanders in the, the the transatlantic slave trade meant that the the refuse uh, the, the leftovers would be brought to New England, and so that begins to shape the character of New England slavery. You see um, an influx of a lot more Africans, um, Africans from particular regions. So, for example, the Rhode Islanders focus on a couple different regions of Africa, West Africa, to trade in, especially. Uh, the Senegambian region, which is in kind of northern West Africa, what's today Senegal. And there they would trade um, and, and bring them back. And the, leftover, and the the ones that they could not sell in the Caribbean would wind up in, 
in, in New England. And so what begins to happen is the the population of, of bound, not just uh, enslaved people, but of bound labor becomes increasingly African rather than um, Afro-Creole, which we're talking about in a little bit, or uh, indigenous, um, it, can, it becomes increasingly uh, African. How did you tentatively determine that New England proprietor Samuel Maverick's slave, quote, queen, was most likely born in the Congo, but a so-called Atlantic Creole as well? And how do Venture Smith, William uh, Borden's Carolina Indian men, and the condemned slave man named Mark, most likely born in the Americas, all help researchers understand the diversity of New England slave population. Yeah, so the I, I'll start with the the first question with uh, Samuel Maverick's uh, enslaved queen. We have a, it's a half a paragraph description of her. She seems to be, have been one of the earliest enslaved people in New England. Um, this comes from the account of a guy named John Jocelyn who was traveling in New England um, in the mid 1630s, and he stayed with Samuel Maverick. Uh, Maverick had long run afoul of the Puritan authorities. Uh, he's an Anglican and a staunch Anglican at that. Um, and, and Jocelyn also was an Anglican and traveling through. And uh, Maverick owned what was what became known as Noddles Island, which is now uh, where Boston, uh, Boston Logan International Airport is actually in East Boston. Um, and he had a farm on the island in, in Boston Harbor. And he owned this enslaved, he owned a number of enslaved Africans, including this quote unquote queen is the way Jocelyn described her. Um, what, what really tipped me off is once again, you know, this is a work of synthetic history. So I read a lot about the kind of early African slave trade, uh, by historians of both Africa and the Americas. And the reason, uh, historians tend to think, um, that this, that she was from Congolese is, is kind of the, the description of her and that, that she was in fact a queen. She is a, a, a noble woman. And we know um, in the 1620s and 30s, there had been a series of civil wars in the Congo um, in which many noble men and women had been captured. Uh, the men, of course, fought in battle, but women were oftentimes followed. The wives oftentimes followed their husbands in the battle as kind of, you know, to, for support and things like that. And she was probably captured as part of in, in one of these conflicts, kind of civil war in the Congo. And she was sold to the Portuguese. It also in the 1620s and 30s is the age of privateering when uh, when New Englanders and um, it, no, I'm sorry, not New Englanders, but uh, when when the English and the Dutch were raiding Portuguese and Spanish shipping, and it's pretty clear that the that either an English or Dutch privateer had intercepted the slave ship this woman had been had been Portuguese slave ship this woman had been put on, um, and then sold in the West Indies. Um, uh, to an English trader and then sold to New England through the, the kind of West Indian connection. Um, but it's also pretty clear that she was what we'd call an Atlantic Creole. Um, an Atlantic Creole uh, is a term that historians use. A historian, Ira Berlin, came up with it to describe um, Africans, both free and enslaved, who had had extensive contact with Europeans um, or had been born in a context where uh, they, they were familiar with Europeans, so say born in a slave society or something like that. And so it seems that this this woman um, could have possibly even been Christian because the the, the Portuguese had active uh, Catholic missionaries, uh, Jesuit and Dominican missionaries in the Congo. Many Congolese were Catholic, um, so she could have been Christian. She probably knew some Portuguese, if not was a fluent Portuguese speaker um, in and of her, you know uh, of herself. So she's very much fits this definition of an Atlantic Creole, a person who. Um, was was born into a world where they're familiar with Euro with, with the kind of emerging Atlantic system, uh, both at the African side and the European side, and and in fact a little bit probably about the American side. And so she very much fits that sort of description of 
uh, of an Atlantic Creole. So she would have been familiar with European languages, European religions and customs and things like that. Um, and so the, the using, building on the work of both scholars of, of early America and scholars of early modern Africa, we can begin to reconstruct the lives of someone like this enslaved queen. Um, the other, uh, as for the other people I talk about in that chapter, um, with the, you know, Venture Smith, uh, the, the Carolina Indian men, um, and the enslaved man Mark, um, they're really important uh, in, in sort of the, you know, the four of them, because Venture Smith, uh, we have his narrative. It was published in 1796. Uh, he was born somewhere near the Gold Coast of Africa in the interior of the Gold Coast, um, where he's eventually captured as a boy and sold, uh, in a, in, you know, and sold to Europeans and eventually uh, ended up in, in Rhode Island and Connecticut. So we see the continual, you know, the, of Africans arriving in New England. Um, but in terms of the Carolina Indian men, this is a, this is something that historians have, have discovered just in the past 10 or 15 years or so. There was an extensive Indian slave trade out of the Carolinas, especially South Carolina. And New Englanders bought many of these uh, enslaved Indians from, the, from, from Carolina. Most of them had been uh, Indians that had been living on Spanish missions in Florida. Um, some of them had also been kind of in parts of independent confederacies and things. Um, and the Carolinians had, had allied with, with local native people. Um, to capture uh, and to sell slaves out of Carolina. This is their main export. It's the staple of, of Carolina's economy until the rise of rice in the 1710s. And, uh, and many of them end up in New England where they, they kind of supplement the labor force. And so beginning about 1700 up through about 1715, 1720 or so, you see the influx of hundreds of these Carolina, Carolina but the, the term is Carolina Indian men or sometimes they're referred to as Spanish Indians. Um, and so you, you do see the continual uh, use of indigenous slaves in New England in a way that you might not and um, uh, you might not think would happen. Uh, and, but they're not enslaved New England, uh, indigenous New Englanders. Rather, they're enslaved from other parts of the Americas and trafficked to New England. And finally, uh, the, the enslaved man, Mark, who was ultimately executed for poisoning his master, uh, John Codman, a, a merchant in Charlestown. Uh, Mark, uh, he gave a gallows confession. This is a common form of literature in, in early New England. And in his gallows speech, he talks about his background and that he was born in Barbados. Um, and that's also a common experience, especially, um, and this goes back to my first book, but also in, continuing in this book, in the urban areas like Boston, many of the enslaved Africans that lived there were actually Afro-Creoles. They were, the term's Creole. They were born in the Americas. Um, and that would have given, you know, someone like Mark a familiarity with English. The English language would have uh, made him a lucrative investment for people looking to purchase an enslaved person because he could speak the language. He could more easily, you know, learn tasks. He would have an understanding of slavery and slave society um, in a way. So he would. Have, so it seems to be there, there was quite the traffic in these uh, Creoles that were born in the West Indies or, or in the American, what we'd recognize as the American South. And sold to New England, and that's what—that's one of the predominant uh, forms of, uh, of, of, of sort of the, the predominant de de demographics of, of enslaved people in New England. Um, and there's uh, and that, and so what that shows us, whether it's the enslaved queen or Venture Smith or William, the, the Carolina Indian man, or, or someone like Mark, a, a, a Caribbean, a West Indian Creole, um, the diversity of enslaved people in New England and the. And that we oftentimes, you know, we, we oftentimes when we talk about this, we say Indian slave or African slave. But really, there's this whole diverse within those categories. It's really a diverse sort of landscape of, of bound non-white 
I have a, a brief follow up question, clarifying question. So, does could Spanish Indian men, uh, in a Spanish Indian, could that encompass? Uh, it doesn't necessarily just rooted in the Carolinas. It encompass a, a broad array of peoples. Yes. Yeah. So it could also refer to um, mostly when when that term is used, it's almost exclusively referred to as Florida. But we, there is, you know, a couple pieces of evidence um, that, that would suggest they might be from like New Spain, what's today, Mexico, even. Uh, there might be a, have been a couple Spanish Indians that, you know, if let's say uh, a Spanish ship, they were serving on board a Spanish ship uh, as a sailor uh, and the ship was captured by New England privateers, that person might be sold to New England. And so, yeah, so generally speaking, the term Spanish Indian or Carolina Indian refers to those who were captured in the, the kind of southeast, what's today, the Carolinas, Georgia or Florida. But we do have evidence that some of these um, Indian, you know, the quote unquote Spanish Indians were from other parts of the Spanish Empire. Why should historians situate New England chattel slavery in the context of diverse familial little commonwealths, patriarchy, racism, and the violence of dependence? Also, what factors shape slave courtship, marriages, child rearing, and family formation? including Afro-Algonquin unions. Yeah, um, so this uh, this comes out of chapter three of the book and to try to understand slavery as an institution in New England. And this actually required, you know, in terms of when I was writing the book, um, going back to the, the, the old historiography on New England about the New England towns, about uh, the way in which Puritan society had kind of organized itself in, in the colonies because... You can't, that's a, a key context for understanding slavery in the region. Um, we go back to you know, the question about the law and the, the ambiguity in the law. Well, why could there be so much ambiguity in the law? It's because the control of enslaved people was very much at the, the sort of household level. And in, in the household was the organizational unit of, of Puritan New England, right? It was the stable foundation of, of any godly commonwealth. And, and so that's the term, little commonwealth, comes from that, is that Households were expected to be uh, kind of run with a with a, a patriarch at the top and his wife, and then everybody else who lived in the household was considered the family. And of course, so this would include certainly children, but it could include, say, in laws, you know, spinster sisters, servants, and enslaved people. And so, to understand slavery in Massachusetts, you have to understand the way in which households were governed and run and envisioned. Um, and and same same thing with like patriarchy um, and, and racism. Now, this the the problem with that conversation is that it suggests a sort of benevolent slavery, that this is family slavery. It's within the household, and slave people were treated like family members. The fact of the matter is that that's not the case at all. Um, rather, what, we, what you see is that these households could be really sort of violent, coercive spaces. Certainly, enslaved people were envisioned as part of the family uh, under the rubric of everyone living under that, the roof of the patriarch's household as a family member. But it also meant that uh, the, the, there was quite a bit of violence involved in maintaining the household and enslaved people could be subject to that violent discipline necessary or that was seen as necessary for maintaining the, the household. And so you can see this um, in a number of, if you read the diaries and letters of, 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 of the patriarchs, of, of the men who, who run these households, they talk about disciplining their enslaved people. And oftentimes you see enslaved people disciplined in terms of oftentimes whipping uh, would be the common form, um, sometimes you know slapping or, or something like that, um, much more frequently than white servants and certainly their own children. Um, and so, so even within this context of kind of household slavery, you see violence. 
but you also will see racism. They're, they're treated as sort of second class. The, you, the, uh, we're talking talk about this in a bit, I imagine, but the slavery in New England was a kind of a middling or a middle class institution. Uh, most slave owners were artisans. Um, and what you, so they, they, were, they buy enslaved children and raise them up sort of as their own apprentices. And these enslaved uh, children become quite skilled, um, but they're never treated as they're masters of their craft, but they're never treated more than apprentices. So that because they're, because of their Africanness, because of their blackness, they're sort of always seen as innately inferior. So, so even with the, you know, the kind of great skill, even living in this context of household slavery, um, you still see the racism and the violence of slavery, just in a, in a slightly different form. On the, on the flip side of that, the second question, the sort of factors that shape slave courtship, marriage, child rearing, and family formation. Um, the first thing we have to say that is the, the most, one of the most important things that, that shapes that is, in fact, uh, the master-slave relationship. Um, enslavers had to approve marriages. They, they had a lot of control over who they could and could not court. And some of this had to do with... Uh, just the very basic logistics of slavery, uh, even in um, urban port cities like Boston, which was, you know, about uh, 15 or 12 to 15 percent enslaved in the 18th century. Um, most enslaved people live by themselves in their master's household. So if they wanted to form a union, if they wanted to find a, a partner, they had to go to another, you know, they had to work with another enslaver, uh, in, another enslaved person that lived in another household. And so and that required, you know, the master's permission to be able to leave the house and, and things like that. So the, the 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 presence of that master-slave relationship is, is perhaps the the large one of the largest bearings on the, the kind of private lives, the, the courtship, marriage, chagrin, family formation. That said, there's other things that, that drive this. Um, so, for example, um, men, enslaved men, especially um, many of them in the, in the port cities, were quite skilled. They're artisans, um, and and they worked independently. So they would kind of be able to move about town uh, to, to do their work and things. And that would allow them to, you know, kind of congregate with other enslaved people to talk, to court, to, to get to know um, and things like that. So, so you see on the one hand, the masters having quite a bit of control of the relationship. On the other hand, the actual process of courting and meeting and, and, and dating, I guess we would call it, um, does come from, uh, can, can actually come from at their own initiative. Um, Child rearing, uh, we see, uh, is it's it, that's really hard to see in the documents, but you will occasionally see it, uh, especially the relationship between mothers and children, which I would argue is because of the issue of, of partis. So you do see mother-child relationships, you, but you will see things say like um, enslaved people taking their children to their their churches, sometimes their master's church, sometimes they're a different church that they they've become a member of, um, and having their children baptized. So you do get a sense uh, in that. Um, and finally, the, the, the family formation, um, I, I kind of mentioned that, but uh, enslaved people oftentimes would not live with their partners. Um, they would, or with their, so the men would oftentimes live apart from their wives and children who would live with, the, because they had separate masters. If they did actually have the same master, they would live in the same household and oftentimes together in a part of the house or an outbuilding or something like that. Um, the, the final part of family formation, though, is the, this, uh, the, the formation of, Afro-Algonquin unions. Um, towards the end of the colonial period, you start to see it in the 1750s and 60s, um, enslaved men begin marrying uh, Indian women. And it seemed to be kind of a demographic match, um, especially in the urban areas. Uh, men tended to predominate. Uh, the enslaved African men were the predominant uh, uh, demography, uh, demographic. And so um, in Boston, for example, about two-thirds of enslaved people were, were men. 
Um, what that meant was that there's, if they're looking for a spouse, uh, because of the laws against interracial marriage in Massachusetts, they could not find one. Uh, meanwhile, in many of the Indian communities in Eastern Massachusetts, uh, you see, uh, a, a dearth of men. Um, men were required, Indian men were required by the laws of, uh, of the colony to serve in the military, uh, where they died in imperial wars. They, many of them were, uh, fishermen or whalers who, who were gone for a long period of time and perished at sea. And so there's an imbalance of women. And so the kind of, and that's not to suggest that demographics are destiny, but uh, in, enslaved black men began courting Indian women. Um, and for the enslaved men, this is sort of a generational calculation where by marrying an Indian woman, uh, she, their children would be born free and have access to tribal land. Um, and so you do see a sort of a, almost a calculatedness, and, I, and that's not to remove you know notions of romantic love or anything, but there is a sort of generational calculation going on on behalf of these men. You also see um, these enslaved men also marrying free black women, um, I think largely for the same reasons. How and why do disproportionate judicial punishments, slave and free black codes, as well as instances of female widow slaveholding, all figure into this family slavery? Quote, unquote. Also, how did chattel slavery conform to wider trends in New England's labor market as, quote unquote, middling slavery? And what were the consequences? Disproportionate judicial punishments, the slave and free black codes, the, the female widow slaveholding, these are all facets of, of sort of New England slavery as a, as a whole. Um, and I'll start with the last one, female widow slaveholding. Many uh, widows, so the, much like I just mentioned the Algonquin women, but uh, much like uh, the that um, New England, especially the urban cities like Boston, was a, was a place of widows. Uh, many of the men were sailors. Many of the men would could die in war and, and shipwrecks and things like that. Um, and so widows actually become a major component of the slaveholding uh, of slaveholders in a place like Boston. Um, a significant uh, a percentage of, of, of slave owners are, are widows. Um, and for widows, enslaved men especially, were quite valuable because enslaved, an enslaved man's labor was worth more per day than a widow's labor, especially if that, like I said, if that enslaved man was skilled, if he was a carpenter or a blacksmith or something like that, he could actually make an income for the widow to subsist. Um, but you also see the, the other side, the, the kind of legal side of family slavery. Um, the, the disproportionate judicial punishments um, is... You can see this in a couple cases. Um, of course, we, whenever we think about the stereotypes of New England, especially the New England Puritans, we think about witches being burned at the stake. That is totally not true. Um, the, the witches at Salem were not burnt. They were hung. Um, but we do have two cases of burning at the stake as a form of execution in Massachusetts. And in both cases, it was enslaved women, um, one in the 1680s and then the other in 1755. And in both cases... It was enslaved women who had murdered their masters. Um, and, the, and this was, and the reason they were burned at the stake is because it goes back to an old English law called pettit treason, uh, or little treason uh, is what that means. And pettit treason uh, essentially was a, is like, it was a form of, uh, of murder that was beyond that because it, it meant that you had murdered your master. You had murdered the kind of person who was supposed to provide for you and, and the kind of your benevolent overlord was the way this is envisioned. So it's a form of treason similar to, you know, uh, the, what we think of today as, as treason, just at, at, on a small level with, with your master. And so that warranted a more severe judicial punishment. And you see these prosecutions for pettit treason um, a, a number of times in, in, in New England slavery, uh, largely uh, when um, 
enslaved people murder their masters. And so, and that comes right out of family slavery is that they murder the patriarch. And that's thus they, they, they've destroyed a household, much like treason destroys a country or an empire or whatever. Um, they've destroyed a household and thus they have to face a disproportionate judicial punishment. Um, the slave and free black codes also largely uh, conform to family slavery, um, where, so for example, um, free black people um, are the target of all sorts of segregational, this kind of segregation laws. They're, they're subject to many of the same restrictions that enslaved people are. So they're not allowed to buy liquor. They're not allowed to own firearms, things like that. And the reason um, for that is because it, it becomes very hard uh, in the sort of the, the, the slave system that's been created across the million colonies to assume that enslaved people, uh, enslaved Africans could be free. Africans have to be dependent members of household. And so they're targeted with the, almost the exact same laws of slavery. Um, as for the second question, how did chattel slavery conform to the wider trends in New England's labor market um, is middling slavery? Um, and what were the consequences? Yeah, as, as I mentioned, slavery is a middling or middle class institution in New England. The, the vast majority are farmers and artisans um, who, who purchase enslaved Africans and, and occasionally enslaved Indians for uh, for supplemental and additional labor in the household, or if they're, say, if they're wealthier and they own like shipbuild, shipyards or rope works or, or distilleries, um, they, they want labor in those industries. Um, and so what you see is, uh, uh, it skews the gender uh, ratio, as I mentioned, you know, about 60% of, and 60, uh, about two thirds are enslaved uh, men in, in the urban areas. Um, but you also will see uh, a lot of enslaved children in New England, um, enslaved children being raised in the households of, of these artisans um, and, and things like that. Um, and, and the consequences of that, though, are you, you what emerges is a highly skilled, dynamic slave labor force, ma- very masculine, of course, um, in the urban areas. In the rural areas, it's, it's a little more even, 50-50, uh, male and female, um, but a highly dynamic, skilled labor force. That then is actually able to, and because of the kind of emphasis on church going um, and, and the concern of these middle middling masters on issues of, of social control, on you know monitoring their bondsmen, many of them are concerned with Christianization as well about converting their their uh, you know enslaved people, and conversion brings with it the ability to read the Bible, and so you have a highly skilled, literate slave population by about the 1750s or so. Please compare and contrast New England urban slavery, particularly uh, for shipbuilding, sailing, and distilling, with New England rural slavery, especially in Deerfield and southwestern Rhode Islands and creating central eastern Connecticut's uh, quote-unquote Narragansett country, where direct African chattel imports had begun to complement the region's Atlantic Creole slave population by the early to mid-1700s. Yeah, um, and so this comes back to what I kind of talked about last question as well. Um, the urban slavery, uh, by and large with the exception of the Narragansett country, which I'll talk about in a second, um, New England slavery was an urban phenomenon. If you look at, say, Boston in the 18th century, 12 to 15% of its population, uh, so that's between about 15 and 1,500 and 2,000 people were enslaved. Um, by 1775, there's only about 17,000 or so enslaved people in New England. Um, and so that's about one, you know, so, so, more than 10% of the enslaved population for New England as a whole, as a whole lives in Boston. New, uh, Newport, Rhode Island uh, had about a thousand enslaved people, which is about 20 to 25% of its in, uh, enslaved population. So there's, you know, an, an additional, you know, significant number. And so slavery is an urban phenomenon in a lot of ways. 
Um, and enslaved labor was vital to the, the industries of, the, of colonial, the, the urban economy of colonial New England. And so we're talking about shipbuilding, uh, sailing, distilling, um, and, and enslaved people were working in those industries, um, as, I, as I talked about. That said, you do see pockets of, and first of all, you see enslaved people across the region in rural and urban areas. Even small frontier towns will occasionally have uh, two or three enslaved people. Um, but in pockets in rural areas like Deerfield, for example, um, you see a sig- about 50 enslaved people living in a town of 400, uh, uh, or sorry, about 500 or so. Um, so you do see pockets um, in, in Deerfield, which is this you know, great land in the Connecticut River Valley. Um, enslaved people put to work in both farm work and domestic work there. Um, but really where you see the, the biggest rural slaveholding is in uh, Rhode Island's, uh, southwestern Rhode Island's Narragansett country, um, where you had uh, proprietors would own these you know, farms of, of thousands of acres of land, and they'd own hundreds or thousands of heads of dairy cattle. And they'd have slave labor forces, 40, 50 people sometimes, um, that would make dairy, uh, butter, cheeses, dairy products, butter, cheeses, things like that for export. Um, and including uh, uh, mo- that labor force is mostly women. So in, in this urban areas, you have uh, men working in the industries. But in the in Narragansett country, these dairy farms, these large dairy farms, you might even call them a plantation, um, were uh, were run by women. Uh, and, and so in that sense, the women doing the kind of grunt work of, of dairying the cattle, that's very similar to, say, Virginia, where women were the primary workers in tobacco fields, or the West Indies, where women cut cane, uh, where the, you know, the field workers are the men field skilled task. It's a very same division of labor. Um, and, and so, but that labor force is also much more African in the Narragansett country. They have direct access to Rhode Island, so direct access to the Rhode Island slave trade. Um, and they're purchasing, you know, both leftover, but also it seems this sort of, you know, able-bodied, uh, uh, African captives directly from Africa, whereas in, in Boston, um, and, and especially in Boston, it does remain the kind of Atlantic Creole population that never really disappeared. So you argue that most of the, that many of the slaves in the Narragansett country uh, weren't, uh, mo- many of them were in fact women? There were a lot of men too, but it, on the big dairy farms, uh, so those, those belonged to like the Hazard family. Uh, it was mostly women were doing the dairying work. So the, the primary mode of production, the primary labor form in those that region, they were there was women. Yeah, I mean it, it's but it's what it, it's interesting, you know. But it's also like I said, it it actually matches exactly what was happening in the West Indies, where women did the sort of grunt work. They're cutting the cane, and the men came to fill the skilled tasks. Yeah. What what roles did taverns, disorderly houses, Christian conversion? before and after the Great, Great Awakening, quote-unquote Negro Election Day, and Afro-Caribbean, West African, and Euro-American funeral rituals all play in the formation of New England slave communities. In addition, what were examples of individual and conspiratorial acts of resistance? And why weren't there more instances of mass slave insurrection? Yeah, so the, the kind of two sort of uh, questions there. The first, uh, this is uh, comes from Chapter 5, and... Um, about sort of slave life in the region. Um, and I'll start with kind of taverns and disorderly houses, then move, move through. And, and so taverns um, and disorderly houses and illegal tavern um, in New England, and you see them pop up in the town records all the time. And they would, uh, unlike taverns, could oftentimes serve really wealthy patrons or, you know, they had 
different statuses of people would visit different taverns. A disorderly house was almost open to the kind of marginal members of the community, oftentimes run by poor widows who'd been widowed because their husbands died at sea um, and very quickly shut down by town authorities. Um, these, but both the kind of taverns uh, that were geared towards working people um, and these disorderly houses were, were places that enslaved people congregated. And uh, these aren't just in urban areas. There's taverns, of course, in rural areas. These were places where enslaved people would congregate. It was a, it was, it was kind of a, a space for them to relax, to enjoy a, a beverage, uh, to have some, you know, uh, to, to enjoy some entertainment, to dance. And so these are important kind of spaces of, of association with both other enslaved people. Um, I'm, I'm sure this is a place, say, for example, a lot of folks meet their partners, uh, but also for uh, other white, you know, building kind of working solidarity with, say, indentured servants or other kind of poor and marginalized whites. Uh, the, these spaces were kind of important for that. And so they're, they're, they're racially integrated in that way. Um, Christian conversion, um, both before and after the Great Awakening, was, a, was really uh, important in New England. Um, we see the widespread Christianization of enslaved people uh, of Africans and Indians um, following about 1700. Um, every church uh, across the region, um, every denomination will have, and especially in the urban areas, have enslaved congregants. Um, oftentimes they are margin, they are segregated. They're, they have to sit in the galley, for example, when they worship. Um, but they, but in some cases they become full church members in, say, the congregational church. Um, but they also become but the Anglican Church, especially, is quite welcoming of, of, of enslaved people. Once again, they're they're segregated and, and have to sit in the gallery. Um, and, and but the ministers, even say ministers who might not get along, say like an Anglican uh, priest and a, uh, a, a congregationalist minister who might not like each other, um, they do generally agree that enslaved people have to be converted. And so there's this pressure from the top down. And for, from the top down to convert enslaved people and from the, from enslavers, from masters also to convert their, uh, to, because they think it will be better, you know, bring social harmony, it'll be better, make them easier to control, which is not true. Enslaved people in turn, of course, gain access to literacy. They gain access to various institutions, uh, that will, uh, the, the churches that, the, you know, provide kind of social spaces for them, the, the various associations, similar oftentimes with leading members of, of, communities. Um, and so this is sort of, uh, the, the, this, it's kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they are sort of segregated, but on the other hand, they get access to sort of material benefits of religion, uh, literacy being the major one. Um, but they also have their own customs and practices that are influenced by Afro-Caribbean practices by, and by West African practices. And we see that in, in what's called the uh, practice called Negro Election Day and in the funerals. And Negro Election Day, um, began in the mid 18th century, we're going to see it pop up. Um, we, I, I think it has to do with most historians agree has to do with the, the increasingly African population, especially in the rural areas of new England, um, where the black community of, of all the towns kind of neighboring towns in, in Connecticut or Rhode Island or Massachusetts in these rural areas would gather for about a, depending on the context, two days to about a week's worth of celebrations. And in the course of those celebrations, they would elect a king. And the king was kind of the communal leader. Um, after the American Revolution, they elect a president. Surprise, surprise. They're good Republicans in that sense. Um, but th this is kind of a it's, a, it's a, it's a space of gathering and, uh, and a, 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 it's, it's exclusively African. 
Uh, many uh, enslavers and masters actually came to support their, uh, their, their enslaved people in doing this. They bought them nice clothes, um, and, and it became a, a chance for them to show off their status as well. Uh, with uh, with their enslaved people, um, and then and then funeral rituals were perhaps the most important um, kind of everyday Negro Election Day. You know, it's once a year. It didn't happen in large urban areas where there were massive concentrations of enslaved people for kind of obvious security reasons. It's never allow that many enslaved people to congregate um, in a place like Boston altogether. Um, so funeral rituals were kind of the the day to day where you would see West African practices and things like that. Um, and as, you know, and funerals were public affairs um, for both Europeans and West Africans beginning in the 18th century. But throughout the course of the 18th century, for Europeans and Euro-Americans, they become increasingly private affairs for the, for the family with, you know, family and friends the way we think of the funerals today. Um, but the African funerals remain large public events. And so there's stories of Africans. And so, for example, um, Samuel Sewell, the famed jurist, had an enslaved man that he freed living in his household. The man's name was Boston. Uh, the free black man living in Sewell's household. And when he died, you know, he had this massive public funeral in the, in the 17 teens and Sewell was in, in, in the funeral. And so you see the, the, a, a huge kind of gathering of, um, you know, of both of white and black community members at these funerals where they would practice kind of West African customs of gift giving and, and things like that. Um, so the, so the, the funerals are kind of the, the sort of day to day where you see African and Afro Creole cultural practice coming out in New England. Um, as for resistance, um, it's the resistance to slavery in New England um, looks in some ways very similar to resistance in other slave societies. So things like running away is very common. And we actually have a pretty good sense of running away because New England is the center of print culture in the American colonies. And so there's lots and lots of runaway ads in New England newspapers. Um, but you see other forms of resistance as well that might not be, say, uh, that, that might not happen in other places. So you find stories, for example, of um, enslaved people who decide they want to go to a different church than their, their master's uh, religion, uh, their master's congregation or denomination. And the ministers will intervene on the behalf of the enslaved to protect them. Um, from from the kind of master's retribution, and so this allows that creates a sort of a kind of religious autonomy for enslaved people um, that comes out of the, the this willingness to Christianize uh, enslaved people. Um, the thing is that, that there weren't many ma- acts of mass slave insurrection or resistance. There's one slave conspiracy in Boston in the in 1723. Um, but there's beyond that, there's very little evidence. There's a couple alleged poisoning conspiracies, but there's not much. And the reason for that is um, an actual violence, um, you know, an uprising. The reason for that is because there's just not a large enough uh, kind of communities of enslaved people for mass resistance like that. You know, at the, at the time of the American Revolution, there are only 4% of the population across the region. Um, even in a place like Boston, where there's, you know, 12 to 15% of the population, the ability to, to kind of organize a conspiracy and, and, and rise, it's just the, the numbers aren't really there. And I, and I think most enslaved people, they, they, you know, they, they probably think about violent resistance. We, we can't deny that. But the idea, and we see a lot of individual acts of violent resistance, poisoning, um, you know, crimes of uh, murder and things like that. Uh, but what we don't see is insurrection. And, and I think that's, um, because they're just, there's just not the numbers there. And most uh, enslaved people would realize that the, the retribution would be swift and it would be fierce. How and why did the new divinity, Quakerism, 
a free black population increase, the Somerset case, Spanish coartacion, colonization ideas, and black petitions to New England legislatures, as well as British generals, one or all of those, uh, spur and undermine an anti-Atlantic slave trade and paternal gradual emancipation movement. Also, how and why did enslaved New Englanders enlist in the Rhode Island uh, first and Continental Army? And to tack onto that, was the gradual emancipation, was this a movement? Yes. So there's a lot to dig in. Um, the, <laughs> the, so all of those things, New Divinity, Quakerism, free black population increase, Somerset case, all of these things are, are things that kind of lay the groundwork for the end of slavery in New England. Um, they also all happen to coincide with um, the, the, the evangelicalism and Quakerism is a little, a little bit older, but they also all coincide with the uh, imperial crisis following the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763. You know, the moment when colonists begin protesting for their own rights, their, you know, they, they want their, they see their, you know, eventually freedom from British tyranny and then declaring independence in 1776. All of these things sort of coincide with that. Um, and so you see a sort of activism amongst enslaved people, activism that's fueled by uh, evangelical religion, you know, the, the, Evangelicalism offers enslaved people uh, kind of a powerful message of spiritual equality, of you know access to scripture that, that can then be channeled into other political endeavors. Um, you see the Quakerism, which is, has quite a hold in Rhode Island, for example. Uh, Quakers become at, rapidly anti-slavery and abolitionists, um, um, and, and so you begin to see the, the see cracks in the foundation of, of, of slavery. And, and including the rise of a free black population, um, through kind of individual acts of manumission and wills when, when enslavers died. Um, you see it, um, through, you know, the kind of intermarriage of, uh, of, of Africans with Indian women who then give birth to free children who then become active in, in the community, um, through suing for their freedom. You begin to see what are called freedom suits in the, in the 1760s and a huge uptick in, you know, suing masters for back wages and, it, sometimes it works, sometimes it don't, but it does contribute to an ever-growing sort of free black population who become committed activists for the end of slavery and for civil rights. Um, all of this coincides with bigger things, um, including the 1772 Somerset decision, where which declared slavery illegal in England itself and on British soil. Um, it made it made slavery illegal. Um, and essentially said you had a positive law, i.e. law that said slavery was in fact legal for it to, to take hold. Um, and so this provided all sorts of inspiration for filing suits, for pushing back against slavery. Um, and this will coincide with the, with the coming of independence um, in, in New England. And especially you see the series of seven petitions uh, filed to the legislature in Massachusetts and then to governors and including the, the mili British military governor after the, the occupation of Boston in 1774, Thomas Gage, um, where free blacks and enslaved people ask for an end to slavery. They ask for civil rights. They ask for, um, and, they, and they keep pushing harder and harder in each of these petitions. The first one, 1774, it's kind of, it's very sort of deferential. Um, but they never get any results either from the legislature or from Thomas Gage. And finally, the last one in 1777 is much more vitriolic, much more forceful uh, and powerful in its arguments about the end of slavery. But it also began to articulate other visions of, the, of what, what would be possible. So we want our freedom. And if you give us our freedom, give us some land on the frontier and we're all leave. Uh, provide us ships and we'll go somewhere else to colonize. Um, you can begin to see the kind of exasperation among free black activists uh, over, you know, not just the, the fight over slavery, 
but the problems of emancipation and, and what they saw as the problems of emancipation, uh, racism, segregation, marginalization, things like that. Now, that said, all of that's going to contribute to uh, to two major developments in the kind of immediate aftermath of the American Revolution. The first is an end of the slave trade. Um, the slave trade, even in Rhode Island, was seen as the worst part of slavery, even by dedicated uh, enslavers. And, and the, the, this was by far the worst uh, worst aspect of it. And so there's a pretty compelling moral argument to end, um, both pushed by free black activists, but also by kind of just kind of mainstream patriot leaders in New England. But you also see the passage of gradual emancipation laws. And these laws provided, and, and sometimes, I, I sometimes call them the very gradual emancipation laws that ended slavery for, you know, anyone born after a certain date in Rhode Island, Connecticut in 1784. Um, and that they would then, um, that they would, you know, that the children born after that date would be free. Uh, but those who were born, you know, but those people who were still enslaved would remain enslaved and children they had would only be enslaved until they were 25. Um, but then, of course, if they had children, they would also be enslaved until they were 25. So you can see the way that it's very gradual. Um, but nonetheless, um, it does start, it does chip away at the foundation of slavery in the region, these gradual emancipation laws. Um, many of in Rhode Island, they, they were kind of passed openly. In Connecticut, it was actually passed through the, the, the kind of a back door uh, where uh, a, a Lee, Roger Sherman, signer of the Declaration of Independence, famed kind of Connecticut patriot, kind of sneaks it into a, a basic uh, budget bill. Um, because it, it proved to be so controversial. Um, so even even in this post-revolutionary moment, the, the the sort of emancipation gets very gradual, uh, but it's also quite even that's quite controversial and, and, and open to debate. Um, but you see other avenues to freedom beyond relying upon these gradual emancipation laws, and that's you, you, the question about enlisting in the Rhode Island first in the Continental Army. Um, New Englander, black New Englanders, black New England men disproportionately served in the military um, during the American Revolution, especially the Continental Army, but also Rhode Island, which was a, created the Rhode Island First, which was a, a regiment um, that was all black. Um, and they, in exchange for service, they would get their freedom. Um, the numbers are pretty staggering. Um, if you take a look at the 1790 census, uh, federal census, and you take a look at Connecticut, and you find all of the black heads of household, 20% of those men were veterans of the Continental Army and could trace their freedom to their service in the Continental Army. So fighting in the Continental Army, which was, uh, it was a, to George Washington did not want this. He did not want to have to enlist black soldiers, but he needed manpower. Um, so he allowed it to happen. And this became a, a real vehicle for the, for the end of slavery in New England because so many black New England men served in the military and found their freedom through that. Uh, many also served for the British as well. I just talked about this with a group of students. What were common quandaries with uh, quote-unquote ambiguous gradual emancipation laws? And how did state constitutional references to natural rights as well as quote-unquote born free and equal facilitate judicial emancipation and freedom suits that you alluded to earlier, particularly for Massachusetts slaves? Yeah, so in Rhode Island, Connecticut, you see the gradual emancipation laws, and they, they are quite ambiguous. Um, because they only, you know, they free people at a certain age, but if, but if a child's born before the, 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 the bound person reaches that age, they're also bound. Um, and so you can actually see the perpetuation of slavery for quite a while. And in fact, Connecticut still had enslaved people at the time of the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865. So that's the, that's the real final end of slavery in New England is in 1865. Um, and so you can just see that 
even with this gradual emancipation, you still see generations of enslavement. It's, it's relatively few people. It does actually, you know, dramatically de- decrease the, the slave population. Uh, and, you know, and enslaved people become free over time. Um, but they, they are ambiguous. Um, there's questions of, you know, what slave laws still apply, you know, are do the slave, you know, do the, the laws that target enslaved people still apply under these graduation emancipation laws. And so it's actually very similar to what was happening in the 17th century, that the laws create such ambi- ambiguity that enslavers are kind of free to do what they want to do. Um, and include, and they're able to coerce quite a bit of labor and, and out of their, they still kind of, ambiguously enslaved people. Um, that said, um, those laws uh, do allow enslaved people to kind of escape more easily. They allow them to have better standing in court and things like that. So so you see this kind of push and pull where enslavers are still asserting their rights, but enslaved people are able to push back in new ways. Uh, that, so say, for example, if you're in Rhode Island, Connecticut, you just had to run over the border to Massachusetts and slavery is not recognized as legal there. Um, so this, this brings us to, to Massachusetts, where um, in 1780, uh, John Adams helped to draft a new constitution that, that said, Article 1, Part 1, um, said that all men are born free and equal. Um, of course, that means that slavery can't possibly exist, drawing from the Somerset decision, that there's no positive law. And the first article of the constitution says that, that, that all men are born free and equal. This allowed for what's called judicial emancipation in Massachusetts, that enslaved people began suing for their freedom, and under the Constitution, slavery had no legal standing. Um, you see a couple of small local cases, most famously, famous is that of uh, Elizabeth Freeman, sometimes called Mum Bet, versus her enslaver in Western Massachusetts, um, where the, the Sedgwick family um, was, were, took on her case as their lawyers. Um, and, and she became free, but most famously was one that reached the Massachusetts Supreme Court, uh, which is the, the common, what's called Commonwealth D. Jenison, where this guy named Nathaniel Jenison had, had uh, tried to forcibly enslave, had enslaved this man named Clock Walker, who'd been promised his freedom by a previous uh, owner. And uh, the, the court freed Clock uh, Walker. Um, the thing is, though, that and what that essentially signaled was that the Supreme Court freed this man and actually uh, fined uh, Jenison for abuse um, and, and assault. Um, if they, it, that means that slavery had no legal standing. The, the problem with this, though, this has oftentimes been hailed as the great end to slavery. This kind of activist judge swings, swoops in and, and, and Judge Cushing and uh, ends slavery in Massachusetts. The problem is that uh, his argument that slavery is incompatible with the Constitution um, was only just in his instructions to the jury. It was never publicized. It was not printed until 1807. So we're talking about more than 20 years after the, the, the actual case. Um, and we also... What it meant was that enslaved people had to go to court, and which means they would sometimes need white allies, they'd need the money to file suit, they'd need the autonomy to file suit. Um, and so the easier option oftentimes was just to run away and knowing that their masters had no legal way in which to, 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 to hold them in bondage. Um, but and, and essentially it was going to be a case-by-case basis that would gradually end slavery. And, and so there's a lot more of these freedom suits that are being filed. And of course, once they're filed, they're, they're easily, they, they can be easily won. The problem is what happens in the meantime and who can and, and whether or not enslaved people can have access to the courts. Conversely, how did economic changes, unemployment, racism, and kidnapping undermine freed people's prospects in antebellum New England? Okay, so yeah, the economic changes, um, unemployment, racism, and kidnapping did undermine this. Um, we have to think about emancipation not as a moment, like in the 1780s with the gradual emancipation laws or with judicial emancipation. 
but rather with, uh, but rather as a process. Um, and what you see happening about the same time as emancipation in New England are two, uh, two things that are also going to become related. The first is a change in the economy. Um, long story short, um, New Englanders had far too many children and that far outstripped, uh, the productive capabilities of the land. Um, and so many of these children, of course, moved to the frontiers, um, eventually to New York, to the Midwest, to the Northwest Territory. Um, but many of the children who, especially younger children who aren't set to inherit any land in the region, they move into the cities and they look for work, the, the towns, um, to work both in the kind of maritime economy of a place like Boston, but also, um, to work in, uh, you know, the, the emerging mill towns by the early 19th century, the, the mill towns in places like Rhode Island, um, Pawtucket, Providence. And there they encounter enslaved people and free black people. Um, but they lay claim, uh, the, the poor whites, this white working class, they lay claim to that work, their, their oper- the work opportunities as their right. Um, so that's the, that's the first thing. Um, but, and, and they don't want to compete with enslaved people and, and free blacks. Uh, going along with that, however, um, is the emergence of scientific racism, where these old notions of African inferiority, that, uh, you know, Africans are inferior, that they have all these pejorative cultural notions and physiological, you know, notions about them, um, gets married to enlightenment science, um, and to what we'd call, uh, what, what, so racism becomes quote unquote scientific. It becomes objective fact upheld by, you know, modern scientific principles. And that those two things kind of intermarry this kind of economic transformation where there's finally a pool of poor of a, of a poor white working class of a free white labor force. Um, so the, the, the need for slave labor is no longer there. Those white workers are laying claim to that work as their right. And you see the emergence of this scientific racism. And, and so thus black people need to be marginalized from the economy because they're innately inferior. They're, they, they don't belong sort of thing. And those, those all intermarry at the same time. And this leads to the sort of marginal, the total marginalization of, of people from the labor force, um, from both kind of pressures from working class whites and from the kind of what's this emerging scientific consensus. Uh, meanwhile, many freed enslaved people face the prospect, uh, the horrifying prospect of kidnapping. Um, beginning in the 1760s, lasting through the early 1790s, we see the selling out of both enslaved people. Many enslavers saw the writing on the wall that slavery is ending and decided they could sell before they got, um, before they would get caught, uh, before they would lose their property um, in a lawsuit or something. And um, it became such a problem, in fact, that both Rhode Island and Connecticut banned the practice in 1784 at the same time the Gradual Emancipation Act. Meanwhile, we have evidence that it, it, of many free people being kidnapped and sold out of the region. And so both enslaved people and uh, kidnapped uh, free people were being sold to the West Indies, the American South, and to Canada. Um, the numbers are hard to get at, but uh, it, there's it's such there's so many pockets of it in the do- you see it in the documents in different places. Probably upwards of about uh, close to a thousand people would have been kidnapped and, and sold out. It's this kind of really harrowing story. Um, and so you have economic marginalization, you have racial marginalization, you have kidnapping, and you also have the rise of actual legal segregation. So Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island, they all segregate their public institutions, including schools. They all have public schools in the early 19th century, and they're all segregated. Um, this creates the conditions, actually, for many enslaved people, uh, freed people now, 
actually leave the region entirely. They move to New York. They move to the, the Midwest. Um, they, they leave. Um, and in this process of leaving, kidnapping, marginalization, segregation, all of this creates a space for whites in New England to begin recrafting the story of slavery. Uh, that slavery in New England was never important, that it never took deep root, that very quickly at the time of the revolution, New Englanders realized the errors of their way and ended slavery forever. And that they were into the slavery that just there was benevolent or perhaps worst of all, by the 1820s and 30s, you have people denying that slavery really ever existed, or at least not in a form that, that, that anyone would recognize. Um, and so as, you know, free people face marginalization, segregation, all of these uh, racism, whites craft a story where slavery became history. It became something in the past and they allowed them to reinvent themselves as New England is a place of, of liberty, of free soil, of abolitionism. And, and so the, the kind of the gradual emancipation, that this process of emancipation opens the door to crafting the story of a free New England, um, of, a, of, a, of a center of the center, and it becomes a center of abolitionist activity. Um, and so that's kind of where the book ends. So before I get to my uh, final question, I just wanted to clarify that my interest in uh, the Spanish Indian slave had to do with a 70s uh, article on um, Rhode Island captive native uh, slaveholders reclassifying uh, the children of uh, captive Wampanoag and uh, Pocasset ma uh, matrons and then taking their children and then reclassifying them as Spanish uh, Indian slaves um, and then selling them into Atlantic slavery or just curious as to whether if there's any possible connections between that um sort of my final question is uh what's going on with you next and i i read that you're uh you're uh you're working on a new project yeah so right now i've been part of a, a team of researchers I, I was the head of the research team i guess would be the better way to frame it um working with the old north church about a historic chocolate shop they own um and and they've been the proprietor of since 2013 and researching the life and actual murder of, of the, of the guy they named it after his name's Captain Newark Jackson. And, um, we were able to dig into Jackson's life and it's, uh, it, it turns out he, he's quite the very interesting character, but, um, it, it's a story of sort of, uh, smuggling and mutiny and murder and, uh, and chocolate and, and slavery actually he was, a, he was a slave trader. Um, and, and so it's, it's this kind of book. It's, it's going to be a micro history that allows us to shine, allows me to shine light on. Um, all of these little these issues that shaped early America. I hope you remember New Books in History for that project. Oh, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the book is Black Lives, Native Lands, White Worlds, A History of Slavery in New England, published recently by uh, Brightleaf, which is an imprint of UMass Press. The author, of course, is Jared uh, Ross Hardesty. And on behalf of Professor Hardesty, as well as New Books in History, a channel on New Books Network. This is Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.